Thanks, Edmund. Well, good evening. Welcome to Uni Church. My name's Rowan. I'm one of the pastors here, and what a great night it is to talk about love, sex, and marriage. Anyone wake up today going, yeah, I want to talk about that tonight? Show of hands. No one? Okay. Yeah, I was like, I'm not that excited about it, but it's a different week for us. Usually we're working through books of the Bible and seeing what God says chapter by chapter as, as He explains parts of the Bible to us. Uh, but this week and the next two weeks, we're coming to some big picture topics and thinking through what God's good plan is, as Lachlan said earlier. Tonight, we'll be looking at love, sex, and marriage. Uh, next week, what's God's plan for green living? Third, third week, uh, what's God's plan for work that gratifies? So it'll be great weeks to think through, what does God think about this stuff? Now, if you're new to church, it is so great to have you here tonight. We love having you come along. But my hope is that over the next little while, particularly over these three weeks... You have an opportunity for all of us to think deeply over issues that matter, to think about what God has to say and how He views them. So why don't we pray together that uh, God would help us uh, to clearly see what He has to say. Let's pray. Father God, as we come together tonight, we've come from all sorts of different places in our minds and in our lives. But we thank You that You've spoken. We thank You that we have Your Word. And as we think through issues that matter, we ask that you'd help us to see things from your point of view. You'd help us uh, and you'd show us where we view things differently from you. You'd challenge us to think about the way we think about things and you'd comfort us with the joy that comes from knowing the God who made us. Pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, we live in a sex-crazed world where everyone tells us sex sells, and it does, right? You just have to put some good-looking person next to whatever the product is, and everyone's like, oh, I need that product. Like, if I wear those shoes or have that handbag or drive that car, everyone will love me. And so you go and buy it. Like, have you ever thought through that? Why do we buy stuff? And why does that happen? The, the, the marketers tell us sex sells. They also tell us that sex satisfies. If you want to have a satisfying life, you need to be having sex and lots of it with lots of different people because that's how you live life to the full, isn't it? Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Yeah. Whoa. No one did that. Woo. See, we, we, <laughs> we live in a world where we're constantly told the answer to the world's problems is love. If only we loved people more. If only we had a little more love. That's what the, the Beatles told us. All we need is love. Do you remember that? Oh, you need it. Anyway. I want a bit of a song theme tonight. I've been looking at songs throughout history to kind of see what they focus on, to give us a bit of a, a temperature of the way we think about these issues. Did you know that 50 years ago, half, 50% of the top 10 songs each year were about love? Half the songs in, in 50 years ago were about love. But by the year 2005, we decided it was so much more important to talk about love that we'd up the 50% to 60%. So by 2005, 60% of all top 10 songs spoke on the issue of love. See, love is all we need. That's what we think, and so we sing about it more. Um, another study released in 2009 looked at popular music and its relationship to sex. They found that of the, the songs that are in the top 10, 92% of them had a, a significant relationship to sex. 92% of the songs in the American top charts had a significant relationship to sex. Further, they, they analyzed the phrases of the songs and they found that on average, the average top 10 song in the US charts had 10.49 phrases in each song uh, that related to sex, when you average them out over the whole lot. Right? That's a lot, right? That's a lot. 
And it got me thinking, there's a lot of love, a lot of sex in what we sing about, but there's not much marriage. Have you noticed that? I'm going to try a real thought experiment here. Um, tell me a song that's a popular song, first one that comes to your head that's about marriage, go. <laughs> Who did, what did you say? Marry me by train. By train. Marry me by train. Okay, others? Call me out. Someone said Stevie Wonder? <laughs> yeah, it would be. Yeah, I love you too, man. That's weird. Uh, a recent song, maybe. <laughs> right? I'm trying to think there aren't that many. The one that got stuck in my head, the one that's actually been the most popular, is the Bruno Mars song. It's a beautiful night. We're looking for something dumb to do. <laughs> hey, baby, I think I want to marry you. <laughs> what a song! Now, Spotify says that that is the top, or one of the top 10 songs to be played at a wedding. What a dumb thing to do! <laughs> You know, they got to number five in the weekly charts in New Zealand, that song. Uh, it got to 39 in the year-end charts. And for a bit of trivia on the side, the Glee version got to 27 in Australia. <laughs> Whatever that says about Australia. <laughs> if you're looking for something dumb to do, blow some cash, says Bruno. Let's get married. It'll be a great thing to do. You know, that's exactly what New Zealand statistics told us this week that the country views marriage in that way. They released their figures on marriage for last year. Do you know over the last 30 years in New Zealand, the number of marriages per 1,000 people in the population halved? There's half as many people getting married in 2018 as they did 30 years ago in, in, in a percentage sense. That's a pretty big reduction. What has marriage therefore got to do with love and sex? It seems like the fewer marriages we have, the more love and sex we sing about, right? That's what those stats tell us, because we're talking more about love and sex in our songs, we're talking less about marriage. Maybe it's that marriage isn't very good, or maybe that there's less marriage, so people want more love and sex. I don't know. Maybe there's a correlation or a causation between them, but we don't want to go too far. So, what I want us to think about today is, what does marriage have to do with love and sex? And why does God care? And what's God got to do with this whole area of, of human life? And we'll have some time at the end of this talk to have questions. We're going to have question time. There's a number up on the screen there. You can text that, that any of these issues, guarantee you I might give you an answer. Um, but it'll be great to, uh, to hear where you're coming from. I'm not going to touch on everything because there's just way too much to talk about. So do text things in. What does marriage have to do with love and sex? And why does God care? It's what I want us to think about. And as important as that topic is, I want to let you know it's not the most important topic. It is an important topic for us. Christians, you hear them go on quite often about sex and sex before marriage and same-sex marriage and homosexuality. You could kind of be excused for thinking that the main point of Christianity is to talk about, well, is to stop sex, like the sex police. That's what Christians are, right? Because you always hear that, oh, why don't you want to become a Christian? Oh, I don't like it. It's kind of encroaching on my lifestyle. What do you mean? Well, you know, we'll have fun. Um, and so that, you, could, you could be thinking that marriage is the main issue. And while what we do with our bodies does matter, there's something even more fundamental to Christianity, and that is what we do with Jesus. So as you come and you meet this man who really lived in history, who really walked this, this earth, who changed the face of history, we meet someone 
who is very different from anyone else, who speaks with a different type of authority, for he claims to be your maker. In Jesus, you meet your maker. You meet the one who made you and sustains the universe. And that means that as, as we think through these issues of love and sex and marriage, the most important thing isn't to hear necessarily what different people's opinions are, but to hear Jesus and to know him and to come to him. So I could stand up here today and give you my opinion on love, sex and marriage. Right? I've been single. It was a long time ago. I can kind of remember what it was like. Uh, I've been married. 18 years in July, Sarah and I have been married. And we have four kids. Yeah, woo! Yeah. Uh, so at least we've had sex four times, right? <laughs> it's just maths. I, I've walked alongside people struggling with all sorts of different areas. Uh, I've sat alongside gay friends who've thought through, why does the Bible say this and how do, what does this mean for who I am? I've, I've walked alongside nearly every kind of abuse you can think of and seen that within churches and within society. But in the end, if I was just going to give you my opinion, it would just be my opinion. And who cares what Rowan thinks, Really? Like, who cares? A far greater voice to listen to would be the voice of the one who invented love, sex, and marriage. It would be the voice of Jesus. And that's why recognizing Jesus as God is the most important thing and worthy of your time. But tonight, we're going to hear his view. Now, a number of years ago, I had a job as a, as a software trainer where I'd go into schools and teach um, teachers how to use this reporting software that they did student reports with. And I'll never forget this one time. I was in the middle of this training session trying to train these, these teachers at this school about how to use the software. And one of the teachers who'd used the software at another school kind of went, oh, actually, I don't think it happens that way. I think you do it this way. And kind of explained to me in this training session how, how um, they did it. At that point, someone else went, oh, we've really done it this way. And they talked about something different. I let them go on for a while before I stopped and said, okay, everyone, when I wrote the software, I wrote it to work like this. At that moment, they all shut up because they realized I wasn't just some trainer, that I'd actually written the software that they were using. See, when the author walks into the room, they have a level of authority. That's why they're called the author. That people can't argue with. They can't say, no, that's not right. And so it is when we come to the creator of the universe and the creator of love and sex and marriage. God's word is God's word. We all come to this view of love, sex and marriage with all sorts of different views, bringing in this opinion and that opinion. But when God speaks, he speaks with the authority of the author. That's why the most important thing you could do today isn't merely hear God's view on love, sex and marriage. It is to recognize who Jesus is. The author of life, he made you and me. He's worth listening to, for Jesus is your maker. Now, as we get to Matthew's gospel, we, we read about a moment in history where some religious leaders come to Jesus, the author of life, to question him. And they want to question him on the topic of love, sex, and marriage. So it's a helpful point to enter into, what do we think about love, sex, and marriage? And what is God's plan for it? They bring their learning and understandings and opinion as these religious leaders, and they approach Jesus we find they don't approach him to find out the truth. They approach Jesus to find fault. And so often, that can actually be what we do. We've got our own views about love, sex, and marriage, and God, and we come to Christianity to laugh. We may have been hurt by Christians or Christianity in the past. You might be strongly opposed to what Christians think or say or what the Bible says on love, sex, and marriage, and hate the whole things that are going on in the press with Israel Folau and Australian rugby. I mean, who cares? They can't play rugby anyway. But anyway... right, I still love him. <laughs> That's okay, is what I want to say. It's okay to come with questions. But anything I ask tonight is that you come with an open mind to say, actually, I want to hear what 
the one who is proposing to be the God of the universe, Jesus. I want to hear what he has to say on this. Because perhaps if he did make us, he might show us something about this that actually gives us more insight and helps us to understand the way the world works. I want to encourage you to honestly consider what Jesus has to say. And that in considering him, you might see these are not crazy ideas, but actually the good plans of the God who made us for your good. So come with me, Matthew 19, verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he departed from Galilee and went to the region of Judea across the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Some Pharisees approached him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? So here we go. These religious leaders have come along, they have approached Jesus, and they're really trying to trap him, to test him, to go, we've got our ideas, we've got our principles. And they want to go, look, how long does marriage last? You know, Moses had said something about um, uh, sexual immorality being a reason for divorce, and what do you think on this? And they're trying, trying to trap him into saying something he shouldn't. But I want you to look at Jesus' response to these religious leaders. Look at what he says, Matthew 19, verse 4. He begins responding with these three words. Haven't you read? How does Jesus deal with conflict and debate? Well, with an appeal to the Scriptures, to what God had said every time. He believes that the Bible is God's Word to us and that God, the author of life, has authority over life to determine what is best for us, what's good and right. And so nearly every time he's faced with opposition and people coming to him to question him, he turns to what God had said so clearly through the prophets in the Old Testament. He goes back to that. You see it when, in, in Matthew 4 when he's in the desert and he's tempted by Satan in the wilderness and he hasn't eaten for such a long time and Satan says, you're the son of man, you can turn these stones into bread. Jesus' first reply to Satan is, it is written, man must not live on bread alone. He just responds with scripture, with coming back to what God says. God is his authority as in the scriptures. Then Satan uses scripture against him and says, you know, this, this could be yours. Jesus then corrects him by quoting scripture back at him. As we come to all sorts of ethical and moral dilemmas in life, and we hear God's word on it, the question will follow, why should I believe it? Why should I do what Jesus did? The things that the Bible says seems to fly in the face of culture. It always has views on gender, on sexuality, on men and women and marriage and hell. To hold the Bible's view on so many things is almost to commit social suicide. Why would you believe what the Bible says? There's a number of answers to that question, and we could spend a lot of time on it. There's a sense in which when you read the Bible for yourself, it seems like it just makes the most sense of life. It has this kind of self-authenticating ring to it. It's got an authority like, like nothing else. <laughs> I remember the story my dad told me growing up. He, he wasn't a Christian. He went to a university where they had these inter-university inter kind of wars, really to steal a Marilyn Monroe picture. That, that's what they were about. There's this Marilyn Monroe picture that they would kind of try and steal from this other university and vice versa. And um, one of the guys in Dad's year was a Christian. And everyone used to hassle him for these kind of morals that he had and how antiquated he was. They'd pick on him all the time. But this one time, these guys came from another college to steal Marilyn. And they grabbed this Christian guy with them and were about to do some bad stuff. And everyone in my dad's year stopped and says, you, you don't touch him at all. Because they knew that there was, while they were hassling him, there was something about this guy that was right. They didn't want to see anything wrong happen to him. He had a ring of truth about the way he was living and people knew it. So it is when you read the Bible and you actually look at what God is saying. It seems to ring true 
to life. But there's a, an even stronger reason why we should treat the Bible as authoritative. It's because Jesus does. The one who is God in the flesh, the one who died and rose again and who claimed to be God and then rose as the Scriptures said He would, He says this is authoritative, this is the Word of God. He uses Scripture as the ultimate authority. So, Matthew 19, verse 4. Haven't you read, he replied, on the issue of marriage and how long marriage lasts, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? He also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. He's quoting uh, that part of Genesis that we just read, that Edmund read for us in Genesis 2. He's quoting what God said in the Scriptures. And as we come to the author of all creation, we come to see that marriage has meaning. Marriage has meaning. I want us to unpack for a moment the meaning of marriage. And out of that will flow a whole heap of different views on love, sex and marriage that we can have. Now, a thing to note in Jesus' answer here, as he quotes, is Jesus says, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh... So leaving his father and mother, joining his wife, new family unit. He's talking about marriage there. That happens for a reason. Do you see that word I've underlined? For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. I don't know if you've ever seen that before. What is the reason that the man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife? Do you see it? The reason is that God made them male and female. That he who created them in the beginning made them male and female. And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The fact that God created us male and female actually gives us the reason for marriage. God had an intention when he made us male and female. He didn't have to make us male and female. You know that. God could have made us like worms. Do you know how worms reproduce? It's called asexual reproduction. Basically, they just kind of lose a bit of themselves. It drops off. And that then becomes a, a, a copy of themselves. And there you go, reproduced. I don't know if the ladies in the room are like, yes, that would be way easier. <laughs> I could just cut my fingernails and look, oh, there's some, there's some kids. This is awesome. <laughs> it didn't hurt as much. There it is. God could have done that. He, he could have done it. He can. Like, look at the worm. Could have done it. No problems. Not hard for me. But he didn't. He made us male and female. He made us to have sex. So often people think that God is a killjoy. He's, he's anti-fun. He's anti-sex. And all he wants to say is, shh, don't talk about sex. Don't have sex. Be quiet about sex. But God is the creator of sex. Like, it was his idea. We didn't come along and go, oh no, let's try this thing. And oh, this is great. Shh, don't tell God. <laughs> he made us to have sex. That's, that's the whole point. Do you know the, the first command in scriptures was to have sex? Come with me. Uh, Genesis 1, 27. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created the male and female. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. How were they to be fruitful and multiply? Well, by having babies, right? That's how they were to multiply. They were just like, mm, more people. <laughs> no. God's first command was, make babies. How do you make babies? This might be newsflash. By having sex. God was saying, go and have sex and have lots of it. Fill the earth. It's a big world. Have lots of sex. 
Sex is God's idea. God invented it. It is good. A little later, he speaks um, in Proverbs about the role of sex, not just as, um, as, as reproduction, as having children, but also as relationship. Look at Proverbs 5, verse 18. Let your fountain be blessed and take pleasure in the wife of your youth. A loving deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts always satisfy you. Be lost in her love forever. You don't get the picture here that this is like, okay, we've got to have another kid. All right, we'll have sex now. Right? This is a picture of them loving one another as a couple, delighting in one another. Be lost in her love forever. Delight in the wife of your youth. There's a greatness to sex. Sex is God's idea and it's good. And it's not only for reproduction, but for a man and a woman to enjoy and delight in. And that's this idea of one flesh that Genesis is talking about. The man and the woman becoming one. And that's central to the idea of marriage. So what does one flesh mean? What does it mean to be one flesh? Well, firstly, in a sense, there's a sense where it's a bit of a metaphor. You know, to be one flesh is to be so intimately close in heart and affection and in mind that there's some sort of unity, right? Hopefully. For any of those that, that have experienced marriage, you know that there's not always unity. Uh, that, that sometimes there's, there's differences. But actually, you, you come together and you, you are, you're aligned with one another and saying, I'm with him and, and she's with me. Like I said, the right way around, but anyway. Um, <laughs> And together, you're a couple. Um, the idea of one flesh has also come from this idea that, that woman has been taken from the flesh of man. Genesis 2.21, God tells us that woman was taken from the flesh of man. What had happened in the garden, God had created Adam, and then he's filled the earth with these animals, and he takes them to Adam to name, and he brings before them, Adam names them, and he's like, is this a suitable partner for you? Adam's like, no. It's like, elephant, No. All these animals come past that animal. No, still no suitable helper was found. Now, animals are great, but it's just, it is not like us. It is not human. And then God goes, okay, <laughs> it's going to hurt. And then he kind of takes a rib of Adam and, and makes from Adam's own flesh this woman called Eve. And Adam sees her for the first time and he's like, whoa, man. And so he calls a woman, right? <laughs> it's true. In your Bible, read it. So he sees it, and that's, that's the whole point, though. He's like, those animals suck compared to her. She's like me. She's of me. She's the same kind as me. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman, for she was taken from man. And the two of them were naked. They felt no shame. And there is the first marriage and sex, and the world begins to kind of be filled. And it's good. This one flesh union is, is kind of, there's a, there's a sameness that has come from them. There's a complementary nature that they are both of the same flesh and blood. But there's another reason that I think one flesh is really important. I want to focus on this in, in this last section about what marriage is. And it's got to do with human biology. Now, I only did first-year human biology at university. Uh, that's where I went, learned that correlation doesn't always equal causation. I remember my biology lecturer walking up and down the aisles, kind of yelling at us with a little stick about that. Uh, but one of the things that human biology tells us is that every man and every woman is biologically independent. Now, that means that each bodily function happens without the need of someone else's help. So our circulatory system, our blood pumping around our body, it operates on, us, on, on its own. We don't need help from others unless there's a problem, and then we've got a problem. <laughs> right? But as everything's operating normally, it, it, operates, it doesn't need someone else there to be pumping your heart for you as, as they pump yours. You, you don't need that. 
the lymphatic system. It's the same. The respiratory system. You don't need anyone else to breathe for you. Thank God for that. Right? The digestive system. Can you imagine how bad that would be? I need someone else to eat for me and then pass it over. That's disgusting. Anyway, <laughs> none of them need any external input. It just works. We don't need any other human beings to make it work. I am an independent, biologically functioning creature in every area except one. Reproduction. I cannot reproduce on my own. I cannot biologically reproduce without another person. It is impossible. A woman needs a man to complete the biology of reproduction. A man needs a woman to complete the biology of reproduction. And as God made us male and female, He made us with this dependence as a humanity on one another to complete ourselves in the area of reproduction. Now, I didn't say without sex and without having children we're incomplete. I'll get to singleness in a bit. But in order to see that function happen of filling the earth and of what marriage is about in that sense, we need to have that potentiality. So when a man and a woman come together in marriage, within a, a sexual activity called intercourse, their bodies speak to the reality that we're completing each other biologically. Our genitalia, it, it, it fits, it works. right? It speaks to the reality that we're designed to complete one another, to form a complete biological whole the two become one, and the one create life from that. That's the joy of marriage and part of the joy of sex. Sex speaks to oneness, the two becoming one together and the potential of creating life. Now, I want you to note that that fact is not true of any people. It's only true of when a man unites with a woman. The homosexual relationship cannot become a union where the two become one flesh because they cannot complete themselves sexually. The sex act doesn't have anything to do with reproduction. Therefore, homosexual relationships can't know the possibility of the sex act of completing itself in the creation of life, of a child. Every homosexual relationship will be poorer than the heterosexual relationship because it cannot experience that one flesh union of together, the two becoming one to produce children. When the marriage shares a new life through contraception and birth and a child, that child now further unites the man and the woman. This child is ours because they equally share, these two separate people, they equally share in the new life that is equally theirs. And they form what's called a natural family. Now, a natural family is a family that's just formed by nature. It doesn't need a legal pronouncement for it to be true. It doesn't need adoption papers doesn't need the government to say anything about it for it to be true. It doesn't need religion to say anything about it to be true. It, it just is true. This is the mother. This is the father. This is how it works. It's just nature. It's not even a religious thing. There is unity when the two become one. And there is diversity where there is male and female. And that is at the heart of marriage. And because God made us male and female for the two to become one flesh, that is the reason that marriage exists for that. The same-sex couple cannot ever have that, that one flesh union between man and woman with the possibility of children. It's so unique, this one flesh union between a man and a woman, that we've given it a special word, marriage. For this reason, God said, leave your father and mother and be united to your wife, and the two became one. Now, while unity is important, I want to help, I want you, to help, I want to help you understand that diversity in this is also important. I want to show you one more part of this from Ephesians 5. Have a look on the screen. Paul says about marriage this. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. 
The mystery is great, but I'm actually speaking with reference to Christ and the church. In Ephesians 5, Paul's talking about the way men and women relate within the marriage relationship. And he's kind of talking about the husband loving the wife um, and, and the wife submitting and respecting to the husband. And he gets to this bit and he's like, but actually what I'm really talking about with marriage, what marriage is really about is a picture of Christ and the church. When Paul talks about our earthly marriage, he's saying that marriage on earth is a pointer, a sign, a symbol of the true marriage. And it exists as a pointer to the marriage between Christ, who loved the church so much, he gave himself up for her and, and died for her, and then has united us to him through faith. That is what marriage is about. It's a pointer to the marriage between Christ and the church. A marriage of men and women is a marriage of two kinds, a male and a female. There's two kinds in that, right? A marriage that is just a man and man and a woman and a woman is not two kinds. They're the same. There is no diversity within that marriage. And that means it cannot illustrate the relationship to Christ and the church. Because with Christ and the church, there are two very different kinds going on. There is Christ, who is perfect, and who is God, and who has laid his life down for us. And then there is the church, who is sinful and broken. And there are two very different kinds happening here. That's why marriage, the marriage relationship on earth must be between two different kinds, male and female. Because it illustrates the relationship between another type of two different kinds, God and humanity, Jesus and his church. It's not arbitrary that God's gone marriages for a husband and a wife, a male and female. It's how he's designed it to point to what Christ has done. Two very different people being brought together, male and female, Christ and his church. So what is biblical marriage then? Well, here's a definition for you. You can write down and think through. Biblical marriage is the public commitment of a man and a woman. It's the public commitment of a man and a woman to each other. To enter into a sexual union, it's a public commitment of a man and woman to each other, to enter into a sexual union that speaks to their completion biologically and to the possibility of children. Marriage is a public commitment of a man and a woman to each other, to enter into a sexual union that speaks to their completion biologically and the possibility of children. That's what the Bible is saying marriage is. Now, it doesn't mean that a couple that can't have a child aren't married. <laughs> All right? it, it, it does require, though, that they engage in sexual intercourse together, that they've actually had sex, because otherwise there is, that not, there is not that one flesh union. See, when, when were people married who were married? Did it happen when they made their promises and said the vows at the front of the church, when everyone was looking beautiful and nice, and you know, the celebrant kind of says, I declare to be husband and wife, and they kiss the bride, and everyone's like, yay! Was that the point they were married? No, well, yes, but no. Yes, publicly, and we signed some forms saying, yes, they're married, but that marriage had to be consummated. You need to go home and make the two one. Without sex, you're not married. You aren't one flesh. Now, the problem with our society is we've, we've actually changed the meaning of marriage. We've changed the meaning of marriage to be, well, marriage is just the public endorsement of my romantic affection for one other person. That's what we say it is. We've taken out the, the possibility of children. We've said marriage is just about love. Uh, it's just about you love someone, you're going to say I'm going to love them for a while. <laughs> and then we, we make these promises in a church or somewhere, in a garden, and we make them publicly. We say, yes, I'm with this person. 
and there's a uniqueness to that. There's no one else who's going to come in, and that's it. I've said that, and that's all it is. And that's why the world, as it comes along, and, and here's God's view of marriage, it says, well, if marriage is just about you know, an affirmation of, of my love, then if a homosexual couple love one another as much or even more than the heterosexual couple, why deny the marriage? It's just a formalizing, a public endorsement of their love to one another. But if the Bible, if marriage is as the Bible views it, then a man and a woman committing to each other in, in a sexual union with the possibility of natural children, it's an impossibility for it to be anything other than heterosexual. It just cannot be. But if marriage is just about endorsing love, then you end up thinking marriage is about your personal fulfillment. You end up thinking that, you know, marriage, I want to be with this person as long as they make me feel good. It's about me feeling good, and I, and I feel in love with them. And so people feel in love with someone, they're like, hey, let's do a dumb thing and get married. And that's what Bruno does, right? And, and they go, and they get married, and there you go. Uh, and then after a while, like, I don't feel in love anymore. And so I, wanna, I feel more in love with that person than the person I was married to. And so let's stop that, and let's start this over here, because I need to follow my feelings. I need to be true to who I am, right? You end up entering into a relationship that only works for a while while those feelings are there. I've got one thing to say if we have that view of marriage. Foolish. <laughs> it is absolutely foolish to have that view. Romantic feelings are not strong enough to sustain you. You ask anyone who's been married for more than three months, you're like, do you still love each other? I still remember the moment Sarah's like, oh, I don't think I love you as much. I was like, what? <laughs> you're like, What? Uh, I, I had a boss once who said, um, I actually started to love my wife uh, about six months into our marriage. And the world around us goes, what? That's horrible. And imagine a marriage without love, without that feeling there. And you're like, oh, how great it is. For it's a commitment to put the other person first, no matter what. Would you rather be in a relationship that you're like, yes, this only exists while that person feels great toward me? Imagine the pressure. I've always got to make them feel great. Otherwise, meant they might leave me and find someone else they delight in more. I need to make sure I, I look good, I'm fit, and I do all these things. It becomes this, like, this weight I've got to carry. Rather than the way God made marriage is to say, well, you're going to commit to one another, to love one another, to come together as one flesh, to keep doing that because you love me. And that's why the marriage vows say, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish. They don't say as long as you feel like you still love them, as long as you feel great, warm, fuzzy, butterfly feelings in there. Because marriage is a determination to love no matter how I feel. It's a determination to say, because I serve God and God's view of marriage is for life, because of what Jesus has done. Like, do you think Jesus kind of goes every day, oh, I'm so glad I love the church. Like that church, those Christians, they always do exactly as I've said. They always say the right things. They always treat me as the God that I am. No. <laughs> like Jesus is consistently saying, I, I love you because of nothing you've done, but because of who I am. That is the model for marriage. And oh, how good it is to commit to one another, to serve one another as we serve God, as we point to the marriage between Christ and the church. Friends, the biggest thing to be afraid of is not a loveless marriage but a marriage that's afraid of commitment. Because that is so scary. Because you never know where you stand. Hollywood has done us a major disservice and, and has made marriage about me and me feeling fulfilled. Jesus loves his people despite our brokenness, despite our rebellion. 
And I'm so thankful for that. And that is a beautiful thing. Don't sell yourself short. So then how do we think about singleness? Where does singleness fit into this whole picture? Firstly, I need to help you understand that marriage is not the solution to loneliness. It's not the solution to loneliness. I know plenty of marriages where people are lonely in them. Things don't work out as well as they would have liked, but they're still committed and they still want to see things get better, but it's hard work. Marriage is hard. I'm not saying that because I've got a particularly bad marriage. I think our marriage is great. Marriage is hard. You've got two sinners in the room living together, united to one another, doing dumb stuff all the time. It's going to be hard. Marriage is not the solution to loneliness. Friendship is. Friendship is the solution to loneliness. Friendship with God who made us and knowing that He loves us and has cared for us and shows us that at the cross. And then friendship with others. Uh, within marriage, hopefully if you marry someone, your spouse, or if you're married to them, your spouse is your friend. That's a good start. <laughs> right? You want to try and care. But, but also um, with the world around us and the friends that we have and people that we share life with, we so over-sexualize every relationship that we say, if I've got a deep friendship, oh, it must be sexual. Because the only way to actually love is to have sex, right? I can't love someone by helping them out and giving them a lift somewhere or by cooking them a meal or seeing how they're doing and sending them a text and seeing what, what's going on. Going to the movies together. You went to the movies with that person. You must love, you must be getting, having marriage. That, that must be where you're going. Our, our world is so over-sexualized relationships that we, we've done ourselves a disservice there as well. You do not need to be married to be a complete human being. Let me say that very clearly. The most complete human to ever walk the earth was Jesus and he's single. You don't need to be married to be fulfilled. Paul says that, that, that actually you're better off not to be married. Now, when um, Sarah and I were engaged and I was reading that part of 1 Corinthians um, with my pastor and thinking through, oh, where does marriage fit? And, and 1 Corinthians 7 talks about if you're burning with passion, you should get married. If you're like, yeah, look, you know, I'm, I'm that kind of bear with passion. I, I really desire to be with someone. Then you should get married. <laughs> That's a good thing to do. But if you do get married, recognize it's hard. And, and you're better off not being married because, you know, then your, your, your affairs are divided. And you're kind of looking after a wife and a family. And you're also trying to do things in, in the church and in the world. And so you're divided and it's harder. It's better by far, he says, to be single. But I was like, no way. I'm the bear with passion guy. Like, That's me. I'm like, I, I want to get married. Oh, I'm excited about marrying Sarah. I'm in. I'm here. I can't even understand what you're talking about, Paul, about wanting to be single. There's something wrong with you, right? That, that was kind of my view as I kind of came along. I reckon it took two months. I was reading through 1 Corinthians again, and I got to that part of the Bible, and it said, you know, your, 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 your um, attention will be divided. And I'm like, whoa, I get it now. Man, I've been, oh, I've been working so hard these last couple of months trying to think about, well, what Sarah doing? And someone says, do you want to go to this party? I'm like, yeah, sure. But I'm like, oh, what, what about what Sarah thinks? And I say yes, but she can't because she said no over there. And I'm like, man, I've got to try and manage two people's calendars. I can't even manage my own, let alone two. And I'm like, man, this is, this is hard work. And suddenly I was like, oh, too late. Singleness is good. Marriage is good. But sex is not for the single person. Sex is for marriage. And if you're single, don't do it. Don't go down that path. Don't, don't seek sex with this person and that person and that person. Don't, don't try and fill yourself up with what you think will satisfy you when it won't, because it is, it's a damaging view of life. Sex is for marriage and only for marriage, because the implications for infidelity are huge. See, sex is like a glue. It, it unites the two people together. And every time you rip it apart from one person and try and then unite to another, you rip a little bit of yourself off with it. It changes us. 
The world around us tells us that flirting, it's harmless. You know, being friends with benefits, it's, it's fine. You know, live your life your way. You know, porn is something to help you with your sex life. You know, it helps you understand how to have sex and what, what normal is. <laughs> it's crazy. You know, the world says that no one's getting hurt, but you and I know better than that. It hurts now, and it's so hollow. And worse still, it will hurt in the worst possible way when Jesus returns to judge. I want to take you to 1 Corinthians 6. And I want you to see what Jesus says about this. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males, no thieves, no greedy people, no drunkards, no verbally abusive people or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. God is saying that to use sex in a way that is different to the way he made it is horrible for us, but is offensive towards him. It's like saying to the person, the author of life, the person that made the software, saying, I know better than you. I know how to do it better. I'm going to do it my way. It's offensive to him. It's rude to say to the creator of the universe, I think I know better. And we will be judged for that. If we say to the author of life who gives us life, I don't want to live your way. I don't care about you. Then the reality is that he says, okay. And we are left to face the wrong that we have done on our own terms. There are consequences. God will punish those who reject him. You notice it's not just in the areas of sexual morality. It's in the areas of idolatry of um, stealing, of being greedy, of being drunk, of being verbally abusive. or uh, It's in all sorts of areas. Oh, they're all in the same boat of people who've rejected God. But let me be clear. To reject God in our sexual morality is to look down the barrel of hell. There are consequences, not just for the here and now, they're true as well, but for eternity. If you're here tonight and you're doing things with your boyfriend or girlfriend or not yet boyfriend or girlfriend that are reserved for marriage... If you're looking at porn, if you're playing over images of people in your head that are not your spouse, if you're pushing the line closer and closer, thinking, what can I get away with? Stop it. It is not good for you, and it will cause you to end up in hell if you do not come to the solution. Not only is it damaging yourself and the other person, but you're rejecting the true and living God. You're not experiencing life to the full in His way. Stop it. Talk to someone about it. Chat to the person that you came along with or someone that you trust or come and chat with me or Lachlan. or Talk with someone tonight. Do not keep going down that path. God made you and His way is right and good. I often hear people saying, oh, the best life is just to have a whole heap of one-night stands with different people. But the problem is you end up having first-time sex with everyone. First-time sex sucks. You don't know the other person. They don't know you. Imagine having sex with the, with the same person for 20, for 30, for 40, for 50 years. Imagine that. Knowing one another so well. Imagine the practice you're going to get. It's way better sex than changing partners every day. What is God saying to you tonight about your sexual ethic and how you're living? What areas do you need to stop and turn from? But the second thing we need to know and the last thing is the grace of God. See, God just doesn't leave us on our own or abandon us in our brokenness. We're all, we're all broken. Listen to that, how that, that same passage that Paul spoke from 1 Corinthians 6 goes on. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 11. And some of you 
used to be like this. But you were washed. You were sanctified, that is, you were made clean. You were justified, that means you were, you were declared right before God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Paul says that list of horrible things that the people do, the sexually immoral, adulterers, adulterers, males who have sex with males, thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people and swindlers, that is what some of you that he's writing to, that are Christians now, that is what you were. We're all broken. We've all failed sexually. If not in person, certainly in our, in our thought life. And if you've crossed the line, if you're crossing that line right now, come to Jesus. Come to the author of life who says, you know what, you have gone too far, but I've paid the price for you. I've dealt with the relationship between you and God the Father in your place. I've taken your death so that you can have life. Come to me and trust me. Put your life in my hands. No matter what you've done, no matter how far you've gone, no matter where you're at right now, God is saying, come clean with him. There might be consequences to deal with, embarrassment to talk about, relationships you need to break off, things you need to stop that you like. But the joy of living rightly with our true and living God, of knowing that he's washed our sins clean, that Jesus has paid it all for us. What a joy that is to come to the God who made us and knows what's best for us. As you share that with, with someone and talk through that coming clean, we'll walk alongside you as a church. We're not going to go, oh, you're a sinner, get away. We're like, welcome. <laughs> We're sinners too. We're broken too. But Jesus washed us clean. And if Jesus is already your Lord, if you do completely trust in him, then you are already clean. You've already been washed. You are not who you were. You are someone new. How amazing is that? In the 4th century, there was a guy by the name of Augustine, a pretty famous kind of Christian guy. Uh, and before he became a Christian, he lived a phenomenally promiscuous life. He, he would sleep with prostitutes, left, right, and center. He was really living it up and thought that life was the best. And then he came across Jesus and was convinced that Jesus was God and gave his life to him and became a Christian. And the story goes that one day, as, as a strong Christian, after this happened for a while, he's walking down the street when, he, when out of the corner of his eye, he sees one of the prostitutes he'd regularly been with. She sees him and there's this moment of awkwardness. You can imagine it, right? Ooh, what's going to happen? She calls out to him, Augustine, Augustine, kind of rushing over towards him. He's just kind of like, walk faster, right? <laughs> Looking away. She shouts louder, Augustine, Augustine. And she comes up to him and says, Augustine, it is I. And the story goes, he looked her in the eye and said, yes, but it is no longer I. I am no longer the person I used to be. As she came to him to seek uh, being paid for sexual services, he said, that is what I used to be, but I am no longer that person. See, Jesus is not discriminatory in whom he offers forgiveness to. We're all sinners. We all deserve God's judgment and hell. But Jesus says to us, come as you are. You don't need to get all cleaned up and spruced up and, and have changed all your ways to come to me. Come as you are. Rotten people who do not put him first, that are broken in all sorts of ways. Come as you are. But never stay as you are. See, as we come to Jesus, he shows us life, his way. He shows us what it is to trust him and put him first and let him be the author of all of life. And that means he will change us 
slowly to be more like him, to live his way, which is good and right and free. Friends, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've been doing, if you trust in Jesus, you can say, I am no longer the person I used to be. I'm no longer looking down the barrel of death and judgment and hell because Jesus has died in my place. And that frees you to say, I'm going to trust Jesus in the way I live. I'm going to take him at his word. I'm going to live his way. For God will forgive and cleanse and welcome those who return to him. So tonight, friends, can I ask, who are you going to let determine your sexual ethics? You or the creator who made you? Are you going to stand on your own two feet saying, no, I want to keep doing this my way. I think I know what's best. Or are you going to come to the creator and experience life as it was made to be? I want to encourage you, choose Jesus. Choose life. Find forgiveness in him. Let's pray. Father, tonight we come to you with all sorts of brokenness. We come knowing that we haven't treated you as we ought. That our thoughts and actions are far from what they ought to be. You know what's going on in all of our lives to every minute detail. Yet you have loved us and you've shown us your love at the cross. When Jesus died in our place and rose again, our sins have been paid for and our future is secure and we can call you our Father. So Lord, we thank you tonight so much for Jesus. He paid the price for our brokenness. And we ask that you'd Help us to put our lives in your hand. We ask that you'd cleanse us from our sin and draw us to your Son, that we might live for him. Father, tonight, let us see Jesus for who he really is, the Savior of the world, the King of our lives, and let us follow him in all we do. Pray this in his name. Amen. All right. Hopefully I've talked long enough, but there's no more time for questions. Is that good? No, there's questions. Okay. Let me have a drink, and we'll have a look at some questions. People doing all right? What about sex? We should be able to go for ages. Okay. Do I need to be attracted to the person I marry? No. Next question. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Next question. Like, no, you don't. You, 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 God grows our attraction uh, to one another, and we, we serve and commit to one another. You don't need to be at all. Second question. Were Adam and Eve real historical people? Yes. Romans 5 says, sin entered the world through one man, Adam. Uh, and so he sees as a head of humanity. In Romans 5 is Adam, and the other head is Christ, and you're either with Adam, and therefore death, or Christ, and therefore life. So Romans 5 tells us that, yes, they need to be real historical people. Okay, uh, next question. Do you, I love this fast stuff. Do you have to hold marriage in a church? No. You can, well, um, I think you mean by that, by the wedding. So do you have to have the wedding in a church? Um, <laughs> I'm like, no, you're married out of church as well. Just, you know, sorry, I understand where it's coming out. Um, no, but, so, so the, the, the ceremony of the wedding, because people spend so much money. Apparently, uh, $20,000 is the average at the moment on a wedding. Yeah, why? We can just do it in church on Sunday. Come down the front, done. Um, <laughs> seriously, it's public. We can do that, not a worry. Um, you just need to have a little bit of notice, like maybe a week. Um, I love holding marriages within the church because it keeps showing the world God's view of marriage. And it keeps tying marriage to part of God's invention in the way he's made us. And so I love having marriages linked with a church service that explains the gospel, that opens the Bible and points people. So this is a symbol between Christ and the church. They're a great evangelistic opportunity. So have them with your church family. 
uh, around them. Next question. <clears throat> Does heterosexual marriage uh, between non-Christians still glorify God, fulfill God's design for marriage? Yes, is the answer to that question. Um, because there's the natural way God has made it, and it still does point to the way God has made things to work. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a natural order about that, even before it becomes Christian. It's just a natural way that that's happened. And that, the, the, just in the same way that the stars proclaim God's handiwork, so creation, when operating properly, proclaims uh, God's goodness of the way He made us. And so that's why I'll, I'll marry two non-Christians. Like, yep, sure, let's, let's do that. I won't marry a Christian and a non-Christian, because the Bible's quite clear. If you're to marry, you're going to marry someone who is in Christ, if you're a Christian. But um, I want to be very clear that it still glorifies God. Uh, great, next question. Under what circumstances is divorce permitted by the Bible? Adultery, physical abuse, yeah. This, this question has underneath it a whole truckload of hurt. All sorts of um, misalignments of the way that we're created to be, the way God made marriage, all sorts of wrongs that are there. Really, it's saying, how bad does it have to be when everything disintegrates to custard before you go, okay, enough's enough. Biblically, you see one example that's given from Moses and, and Jesus in saying that except for the case of sexual immorality, that divorce is permitted. Uh, that where one partner has then slept with someone else that so disintegrates what has gone on because of the, the one flesh union being core to marriage, sex being core to marriage, that to, to, to sleep with someone else is to, is to rip that apart and break it. And so it seems that that was given as an, an exception to saying no divorce. It doesn't mean you have to. It doesn't mean we, we ought to be, we do that if, if one party has fallen. Um, Christ continues to love us even though we fall. Um, but it seems that there's a permission in that. The next question then comes in, um, well, can that person remarry? And that's an even trickier question. Uh, and, and not just for the time now, but there's a sense in which it might be that they, can't, they shouldn't re remarry because there is the possibility of that person repenting and coming back. So there you go. Okay, what is your, what is your biblical opinion regarding contraception? Does it interfere with God's plan for reproduction? Um, so... The Bible doesn't really talk about contraception because it wasn't really a thing. There's one part where people say, like, he, he spilt his semen and so he didn't get the woman pregnant in um, this kinsman-redeemer relationship. Um, basically, I think contraception is part of um, uh, helping us to enjoy marriage and, and enjoy sex without it necessarily needing to lead to having children. Now, people have done that for ages. You can work out, it's called the family planning method with contraception. Uh, there's a small window that you can get pregnant within uh, a woman's period, uh, so within a woman's cycle. And so there's, there's a small window of around four days, generally. And so you can work that out and go, okay, so during those four days, we won't have sex around ovulation. Uh, and, and so you can, you can work that. It's always been the case. Your, your body temperature changes. You, you can work that stuff out. Uh, if you're married and you're thinking about using the family planning method as a, as a method of contraception, I'd encourage you probably not to because I, I call people that use um, the family planning method um, parents, generally. <laughs> because we, we get stuff wrong. So you could work that out the whole time, and there's some wisdom as to when a good time is uh, to have kids, and if you want to have, you know, get married straight away. The point is, if, if you did get pregnant, it's fine. You're in this committed relationship for life. You're there together. This is joyful. This is great. Brilliant. Not a problem. And, and you can go through, and God does set, tend to turn off the possibility of when you can keep having kids. Um, there's, there's, there's a real age. I think once you get to, for women to get to the age of 35, from that point on, 
um, being fertile drops off quite steeply. Um, so there's kind of a, uh, a reality about timing for marriage as well. Uh, but I don't think it does interf- interfere with God's plan for reproduction. Um, as long as every couple who gets married is saying, if we can, we are seeking to have kids. Every Christian couple is saying that, because I think that is the purpose of marriage, is coming together, one of the purposes of marriage, enjoying one another, being one flesh, and producing children from that. Is oral sex unclean, unnatural, and unholy, since it doesn't procreate and multiply? Is this the same for masturbation? Great, two questions. And I said oral sex and masturbation in the same line. <laughs> Ooh. Okay. Um, firstly, is oral sex unclean, unnatural, and unholy, since it doesn't procreate and multiply? Um, if you were to say yes, it is unclean and unholy because it doesn't multiply, you would say yes for kissing as well, wouldn't you? Never seen a baby come about by kissing. <laughs> so, no, I think within a marriage, um, there's a real reality that, that seems that that would be a fine thing. Uh, as you kiss on the lips, you can kiss all over. You're, you're giving your bodies to one another. Now, there's a sense where, and I'll, I'll say anal sex as well, um, it seems that our bodies weren't made for anal sex. There's actually pain receptors, in it, and there's, there's something about that that is wrong and harmful. So is it right to harm your spouse because of um, you, you serving them? Well, no, because sex is about serving the other and loving the other, rather than going, oh, what well, I must get. Uh, and so at that point, would you do something that harms someone? No. Uh, so I think oral sex, as long as both um, spouses are, are happy with that, uh, then that's fine. Is it the same for masturbation? Is masturbation wrong? A um, couple of things with that. I think, what are you doing in your head as someone is masturbating? It's more than just the physical stimulation going on, usually. You're usually thinking about someone. And that's the particular area that I think is an issue. If there's someone going on in your head that is not your spouse, that you're not married to, then I think, yeah, that's, that's sexual immorality. You're thinking about someone that isn't your wife or husband. And you should not be doing that. Uh, is it possible to have masturbation in that you have stimulation of your genitalia without thinking about someone? I guess it's possible, but pretty dangerous, isn't it? Because your head might quickly move to thinking about that another person or someone else because we're relational beings. And then the question is, why do you need to do it anyway? Uh, God, God has created a way for kind of wet dreams to happen. <laughs> you don't need to like, well, someone's got to get it out, you know? Uh, <laughs> No, God's done that. You can do it in your sleep. It's real easy. <laughs> uh, so it doesn't need to happen. Uh, and I'd be very careful around finding um, something in it, that masturbation can become an, an addictive thing that I feel like, you know, I need it to get me to sleep or I need it to, to think about these other people. I want to say steer away from that. But within marriage, it can actually be helpful, mutual masturbation. You don't need to be actually having intercourse. It can be helpful for one another. And you want to talk about that within marriage with your spouse. Never hide anything from your spouse. Uh, always see that you're talking through all of those together. Okay, I'm going to keep going as long as these questions come up. So, somebody stop me. Uh, how is God's plan good if He made people who are attracted to people of the same sex as them, but they're not allowed to get married and have sex? Yeah, that's great. Um, great question. And I, I want to say it's not a struggle that I've personally gone through, it's a struggle that I've walked alongside others with who find they're not attracted to people of the opposite sex, but are attracted to people of the same sex. The question is, how is God good in creating that, that way? Well, first thing to say is, God didn't create you that way. Um, there's a reality that we were created to be good and right, and that is husband and wife. Adam says, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, this is awesome, she's great. But we live in a world that's broken because of sin, with all sorts of brokenness. Like, I, I'm lazy, 
I, I, don't, I don't always do what I say I want to do. I, I, I don't always treat God as I ought. I don't always love my wife as I should. I don't always speak to my kids in the way I should. I'm not complete. I'm longing for the day Jesus comes back and makes me whole. And that's the same for us sexually. It's the same for the, the heterosexual person. Because the heterosexual person is saying, I'm in a marriage. I, I'm married to Sarah. We're married for life. What happens when I find myself attracted to someone else who isn't my wife? And they might be a, a, a woman, but is that okay because they're a woman? No, <laughs> it's not okay. And so marriage is saying that I need to be committed to that one person I've committed to, even despite my attraction to others. The lie behind the whole same-sex marriage thing is I'm not fulfilled unless I'm able to express myself sexually with a person I'm attracted to. Well, that's just not biblical marriage at all. Biblical marriage says you might be attracted to someone else and you say no to that. You say, I'm going to commit to the person that I'm with for the rest of my life. Marriage is always saying no to other feelings that we have and attractions that we have. That's what marriage is. Uh, but it's hard, and there's a sense where we come along and think, well, how can I live a fulfilled life? God is saying, you don't need to be married to live a fulfilled life. Like I said, there are so many marriages that aren't great. The husband and wife would love to get out of, but actually go, no, we need to work really hard at this. And it is hard work. So it is for people who are single and want to get married. I'd love to find someone. And by the way, I'll just say this briefly. Sometimes I think uh, we're waiting for the perfect person to get married to. Like I'm waiting for that person that just, um, you know, they complete me. And they're, they're, they're the perfect fit. I just think, look, if you want to get married and you're seeing that there's, there's a Christian and you're working together kind of reasonably well, like talk about it. Don't be like, oh, they've got, you know, one ear's bigger than the other. <laughs> it's most of us, you know. Seriously, if you've got a list of the perfect person and on that list it's not all biblical characteristics, throw it out. Seriously, throw it out. It's just ridiculous. But we want to find someone who will lead us and love us. Now, but what if I'm attracted to someone of the same sex? Well, God is saying you need to say no to that. I did not, like, you will not find fulfillment in coming and, and, and finding um, this marriage or this relationship with a person of the same sex. Uh, be friends with people. Yes, share life together. Yes, that's good. But it is not right for that. That's not the way God has made us. It is destructive to you, to them, and it's rebellious to God. But He didn't make you that way. It, it's, a, it's a reality of the brokenness of the world that we're in. But it's hard. It's hard. And so I want to say, share that, 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 that attraction that you have and how hard it is with others who can walk alongside you and, and form good friendships and be involved in other people's lives. That's, that's great. We can serve God and be a complete human being single. Okay. Since God created humans as sexual beings, how can slash does a celibate single person express their, their sexuality? Yeah. Um, I think it's saying you express your sexuality by just being you. You don't need to have sex to express your sexuality. Um, God did create us with a desire um, for others, and that, that is generally the way that, that has worked in nature. Um, but I think the point is that we, we celebrate our sexuality by being a brother rather than a sister, if you're a male. <laughs> or, or a sister <laughs> rather than a brother, if you're female. Like, I'm, I'm actually, my, my sex is that I, I am male here in my relationship to others. And so I can look at the way I relate. And there are a whole lot of differences that they play out in through, throughout, not just marriage, but also within roles within the church. And we want to think through that we we express the reality of the way God made us, and we don't need to do that by having sex. Sex is not the be-all and end-all. Okay. Next question? All right. Let's keep coming. 
there seems to be a gap between Paul's ideas of sex in 1 Corinthians 7 and ideas in other parts of the Bible which show that man was made to have sex and populate the earth. Uh, how is man to do both? Yeah. What you're seeing is in the Old Testament, the, 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 the creation mandate was to fill the earth and subdue it. It becomes a picture that, that humanity out to see the earth populated and people um, uh, serving God and ruling the world rightly under God uh, to serve Him well. As we get to Jesus coming, we see the ultimate human, Jesus. We see Him die in our place and rise again as the King. And suddenly, the, the, the task we have shifts a little. We're still here to, to fill the earth and, and to look after the earth under God. But there's another kingdom that's now introduced. That's the kingdom where people move from death to life by trusting in what Jesus has done. And tonight, if you've, if you've done that, if you've put your life in Jesus' hands and said, look, I want in, then you've moved into the kingdom of God that will continue for forever. And so Paul's saying the most important thing is not sex, is, is not just kind of having lots of marriages and people sitting under God and filling the earth and subduing it. The most important thing for you to be thinking about is telling people that Jesus is Lord, is the creator of the universe. And so he says, if that's what you want to do and you want to get on with it and, and you're not burning with passion, then get on with it. But if you're burning with passion, get married and get on with telling people about Jesus. Life is about telling people about Jesus because Jesus has come. and He's changed the nature of, of understanding the world around us. And so that's where I'd say um, you, you then want to move forward to go, well, marriage is still good. Marriage is great and we should celebrate it. Um, and at the same time, we should make sure that all we're doing within marriage, within singleness, is proclaiming how great Jesus is to the Lord around us. Okay. I would love uh, to invite you, if you've got more questions, uh, to come and have a chat with me afterwards. Uh, I'm happy to answer them and to chat through stuff and where that's at. But uh, what we're going to do now, in a moment, is we're going to celebrate together in the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is, is another symbol, a sign that, that points to the reality of what Jesus did at the cross. That, that his body is like the bread and it was broken for us. And his blood was poured out so that we could be saved. So what I'm going to do is, uh, in, a moment, um, in a moment, the museums will get up, but um, we're going to share around the bread and the grape juice. And if you, want to trust, if you want to say, look, I'm in, I want to serve Jesus, then why don't you take this as an opportunity to say, yes, I'm in and I trust you. So I'm going to pray now. And if you want to say, yeah, look, I want to start a relationship, then why don't you pray to God and ask him to forgive you? And if you want to, if you're a Christian already, then you can say thank you so much for what you've done for me in this. So let me pray, and then we're going to sing. Father God, thanks so much that Jesus died for us, that his body was broken in place of ours, that his blood was poured out so that we could be saved. We ask that tonight, that you'd help us to trust you, to put our lives in Jesus' hands and to let him define our future because he has saved us. We're sorry for the times we've turned our back on you. Please forgive us and please help us to live uh, trusting you and, and telling the world about you. We pray that these symbols of bread and, and grape juice we're about to um, pass around and hold on to form a sign for us to point to the reality of what Jesus has done and that he is coming back. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Friends, we have a God like no other. Why don't you stand and sing and as you sing... Uh, the grape juice and the bread will be passed around. Just hold on to it. If you trust Jesus, take that, hold on to it. After the song, we'll eat together. Let's stand and sing of the holiness of our God. Who
as you reflect on this bread that reminds us that Jesus' body was broken for us. The holy God who has died in our place, laid down his life for broken people like us so that we could be forgiven. How great is it that Jesus died in our place? Won't you who trust in Jesus take and eat this now, remembering Jesus' body was broken for you and be so, so thankful. Let's eat. As you reflect on this grape juice that points us to the the blood of the creator of the universe that was poured out for you. Jesus said to eat and drink these symbols in remembrance that he is coming back. He is coming back to judge the living and the dead and to put things right and to take away the brokenness. So you who trust in Jesus, won't you drink this looking forward to the day Jesus comes back, knowing with absolute certainty you've been washed clean because of the blood of Jesus. Let's drink. Father God, as we reflect on what Jesus did for us, that the holy God, the perfect God, the God who had no sin, the person who lived the most complete life and the most perfect life would die in our place. He would take the penalty for us and he would rise again offering new life and showing that he is the judge of the earth. We are so thankful for the certain hope that comes from trusting Jesus. We ask that these symbols of Jesus' body and blood might push us out into your world confident, not that they do anything in and of themselves, but confident of what Jesus did at the cross and that he will come back again. And we ask that you'd help us to live for you, to remember the sacrifice Jesus went through so that we might live your way. We pray this in your son's great name. Amen.